So if your Bibles, you want to turn to Luke 15. Third Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke 15 will be in verses 11 to 32. Luke 15, 11 to 32. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we're thankful that you're a chain breaker. That we're not lost in our sins hopelessly. But instead, through faith in your son, the finished work of what he did on the cross, his death as a payment of sin, his resurrection as evidence of life after the grave, by accepting by faith what Christ has done for us as Savior, we can be given eternal life. Father, as we look at your inspired and errant word, we look at a text that is probably among the most familiar to us, not only in the Gospel of Luke, but in all of Scripture. I pray that we would resist the temptation of just being so familiar with the text that it doesn't impact our lives. Speak to us, we ask, through your word. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. When I attended graduate school at Trinity, I was in a master's program called a Master of Divinity, which is a three-year master's program, and ancillary requirement to that is that you preach live in three different churches. Three years, three different churches, how big a deal can that be? But understand that Trinity is in the North Shore of Chicago. There are several dozen seminaries in Chicago with probably tens of thousands of students, probably well over a thousand professors. And so you have lots of students, lots of professors from lots of seminaries available to fill the pulpit. Because of that, if you're a student there, sometimes it's rather difficult to get the opportunity to preach in a Chicago land or Chicago area church. But as I've shared in the past, the individual at Trinity that took all the phone calls from the churches saying, hey, on such and such a date, would you send somebody to preach? I knew that professor rather well. And so he and I struck up an agreement that I would always say yes if he called me. Anywhere in Illinois, Iowa, or Wisconsin, I would go. And so he only needed to make one phone call. It saved his time. And I had the opportunity for the last few years to preach two, three times every month. Now, as I've shared in the past... Uh, it didn't always work as I would like. Sometimes it was quite humbling. On more than one occasion, I would show up and they would expect a 55-year-old seminary professor and they got a 24-year-old who was rather unpolished, unskilled, and timid. And you can imagine they were never appreciative of that. On multiple occasions... I would end up in a church that did not preach the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ. I remember one particular time I preached, and afterwards, 
the leading layperson took me aside and rebuked me because I had the audacity to suggest that salvation was only in the name and the faith of Jesus Christ. Another church I preached in, happened to be in Wisconsin, I preached there six weeks in a row, it was a free church. This guy sat in the front row, front seat, and as soon as I got up there, he shut his eyes, put his feet up, and fell asleep. I wanted to wring his holy neck in the gentle name of Jesus. I remember another occasion, it was a pulpit like this, except it was square and all the way down, and had this... uh, shelf and some kind soul had put a cup of water there where I didn't see it and I rolled that puppy back (laughs) and the water spilled in such a way that it looked like maybe I hadn't made it to the restroom. For the rest of that sermon I talked slow behind the pulpit just praying to Jesus that those pants would dry before I was done. (laughs) Poor Betty Ann. There has got to be a special place in heaven for long-suffering wives, seminary wives who get up early every Sunday morning to tramp across a couple states to listen to their husband preach. Now understand, I was a full-time student, also had a job, and now I'm preaching on Sundays, so I didn't write a new sermon every time. In fact, if truth be told, if we were going to a new church, I would always preach On Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32, the prodigal son. My wife has heard the prodigal son more times than probably anyone on the face of the earth. And today you have the privilege of hearing the same pathetic sermon. Actually, I've updated it a bit. It's prodigal son 2.0. And so I'd like to read the text to you. It's from Luke 15, starting in verse 11 all the way to 32. And he, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began 
to celebrate. Our account begins with a young man. He's probably around 13, 14 years old. He comes to his father and he says, Father, someday you're going to give me an inheritance. But dad, I'd like my inheritance now. He was essentially saying to his father, Dad, you are dead to me, and so give me what I hope I have coming, and I will head off. Now, we understand from the text that there seems to be two children, two sons, and according to Deuteronomy 21, the 17th verse, when you have two sons, the oldest gets a double portion, and the younger sons get a single portion. And so he's asking for about a third of his estate. Let me read Deuteronomy 21, verse 17. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. And so he's asking for a third of everything dad owns. Now verse 13 goes on to say, that soon after receiving it, unbelievably, his dad gives it to him. It must have astounded the tax collectors, the sinners, the scribes, and the Pharisees who are listening, verses 1 and 2. A few days after receiving all this, it says he left and he went off to a far-off land. Now, you and I might envision that he packs up his bags, he rents a U-Haul, and off to Sin City he goes. But we know better, don't we? We know that in the first century, very few people had liquid assets. They don't have cash. They don't have mutual funds or bonds or stocks. What they have is land and lots of it. And what they have are flocks and hopefully lots of them. And so in order to gather all that he has and to go off to a far off land, he needs to sell that which has been given to him. Now, we understand from Scripture that in the first century in Israel, land was passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so father gives it to son, who gives it to his children, who gives it to their children, on and on and on. You never sold the land. In fact, if you were to sell the land, that would suggest that your family is destitute. You are on the edge of death. And so this is the only means out. And even then, in Leviticus chapter 25, God provided a way for you to get your land back. It was every 50th year on the jubilation year, you would get the land coming back to the original owners. And so to sell land is utterly unthinkable. This son, unbelievably, is selling his parents' security here social security for the next number of years as they head into the golden years. They need the land in order to graze the flocks, in order to bring forth the, the food. And he says, I don't care about you, mom and dad. I want the land now. He doesn't care about his children and his grandchildren when they come. He wants to sell the land now. He is self-entitled. He is angry. In addition to the land, almost certainly there were a few heirlooms. We know from recent excavations, 2014, 2015 in Magdal, as well as Bethsaida and others, we know that the average family owned at least three or four heirlooms. 
there was a mata. That would be a spoon-like instrument that was used for incense that you would sacrifice to the Lord. There was a bronze jug. Every family would have it. It was only brought out. It was kind of like the fine china. You would bring it out when you have individuals to your house that are particularly uh, special to you. In addition to that, you would have a seven-branch menorah. Not nine branches, that will be later on, but a seven-branch menorah, a candelabra that you would use for celebrations of certain holidays. These would be akin to the family pictures over the mantle. They'd be akin to grandma's china or a family Bible. He would have probably one of the three, and in order to head off to a sinful place, he probably sold that as well. Now, the normal response by a father would be certainly to discipline his son, perhaps to banish his son. But we understand that this is under Roman law. Palestine is under Roman control. Israel is under Roman control. And there is a Roman law called patria potesta, the power of the father, which would allow the father to legally put his son to death for such an outlandish request. And yet this father, who represents our heavenly father, loves the son even in the midst of the disobedience, and he would have none of it. And so this father actually not only forgives the son, but grants the son's ridiculous request. As I thought about this, I thought of a newspaper article I read a number of years ago in the Chicago Tribune. In this particular article, there is a woman from Japan, that 6,900 island nation, where land is at an utter premium. And this woman had a plot of land somewhere around one and a half acres, no buildings, just flat land, prime real estate. And she was being offered north of $1 million for that empty plot of land. She wanted to sell it. But her relatives were suing her in court, trying to prevent her from selling that piece of property. Why? Because it was the family burial plot. And in a society that reveres ancestors, it was unthinkable that anyone would sell that land. That is showing disrespect, disdain, not caring for your heritage. That's exactly what is going on in the life of this young man. Well, with his bag of shekels, having sold it all, the young man heads out to Sin City. He's going a long way away. In fact, he's going the wrong way. Jews don't leave Israel. They don't go out to the diaspora, the dispersion, the place of the Gentiles. To leave Israel is to leave the temple of God in Jerusalem. To leave Israel is to leave many of the local churches, the synagogues, that dot Israel all across the 12 tribes. To leave Israel is to leave kosher kitchens. It's to leave the teaching of the Torah. It's to go into a Gentile area. He's going the wrong way. And when he goes there, he then invests himself in foolish living. He spends all of his inheritance. It goes rather quickly. Sin can be a pretty expensive proposition. About the time he runs out of money, his parents' money, 
is the time when a famine hits the land. He's hungry. He's famished. His stomach is bloating. He's getting weak. He's run out of money. He has no family. He's out in the diaspora, the dispersion, away from his family. And so he goes to the one ads and he looks for a job and, and he can't find a reputable job. What would he expect? He's a Jew in a Gentile land and prejudice goes both ways. He's not likely to land a very good job. And so he ends up a Jew working with pigs, which is unkosher for his faith. Recently, I went on the internet. I typed in, what are the least desirable jobs in America today? And I got a few lists, but there were four jobs that most Americans particularly are not excited about. The first one is the cleaner of portable toilets. Yeah, that probably wouldn't excite most of us. The second is a sewer technician. The third is the roadkill technician. It's actually a job. You get the privilege of going along highways, picking up what we have hit and have been rotting. The fourth is maggot farmer. Young people stay in school, get the diploma. This guy didn't, and all he gets going forward is to work for a pig farmer, which is not kosher. As Joachim Jeremias says, to work with pigs as a Jew is to render him too ceremonially unclean to go to synagogue. In the unlikely event that there is a synagogue out in the diaspora near where he is settled, he can't go to church because he is too ceremonially unclean. He's not welcome. He's unclean, unclean, and therefore he is shut out. And so he works with the pigs for quite some time, and he longs to eat the pods that he is feeding the pigs. They're carob pods. There's two types. There's one type of carob pod that is rich nutritionally and rich in natural sugar. That's the type that humans consume. The other is rich in fiber but has almost no nutritional value. That's the type that is fed to pigs. That's what he's feeding. That's what he's longing for. Bone up a tea. He's looking to eat those very pods. And finally, as he's feeding the pigs in the midst of a famine, unable to provide for himself, he thinks to himself, what am I doing? My father back in Israel has servants who are better fed than me. I will go back and I will say to my father, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be a son. Make me a servant. Make me a slave. Make me a hired hand. And so he goes back. Now at this point, scholars are a bit divided. The type of servant that he's asking to be is someone who receives a paycheck each day. It's minimal, but it will provide for oneself. So some scholars, I think the majority, believe that this man has come to the end of himself. He's confessed. He's repentant. He's going to come back and really ask for forgiveness and to be a hired servant. I think that's the way to read the text. But some say, no, no, he's still angry. He's still bitter. He's still all about himself. 
He's not going to ask to join the family. He doesn't want to be under his father's rules. He doesn't want to go to church. He just wants to make a paycheck and live away from his father. That's possible, but I think less likely. All do agree in this. It's almost unthinkable that this father would forgive, that this father would embrace. In fact, the text goes on to tell us that initiative is taken by the father, verses 20 to 24. The father is on the edge of the property. The father is looking at the horizon. The father is searching for the son. The father is longing to see the son. Understand this. The father has no reason to believe the son is returning. The father has no knowledge of when the son might return, if he ever returns. And so the implication is the father is daily searching, longing, looking, spending his free time, wondering if his son might come, if he might see his silhouetted body on the horizon. And when he sees him, he runs to his son. Now those of you who have been in the church for a little while know that on Reformation Sunday, the Sunday closest to October 31st, I often dress up as a 16th century character, which means I wear something like a tunic. I did it just this last Wednesday for One Way Club, where I taught the lesson over in Weston. And when I wear these tunics, I discover that long dresses are death traps. I don't know why anyone would ever wear one of these things. To try and run in them, it's just not possible. And to be a Jewish man that hikes up his outer tunic, thus exposing the under tunic, it would be a sign of shame, a sign of humiliation. Jewish men don't run. But he's longing, he's looking, he's searching, he's waiting, he's hoping to see the silhouetted body of his son. And so he runs to go after his son. Now scholars are a bit divided as to why he does this. And so what I'm going to tell you next some scholars believe and others are less sure. But there's something called kezaza, a cutting off ceremony. The reason they're unsure is that not all areas of Jews practiced it. It certainly was practiced in the first century. It certainly would be known to many, but it's not universally practiced. So is kezaza, the cutting off, part of the text? Some say yes, some say Probably not. But I think it makes sense that it might be part of the text. Kezaza is something like this. When a son or a daughter is humiliated, one's parents and gone off and just done what is degrading and depressing and of despair and tries to come back, but he's brought such shame on the family, there's a tradition called kezaza, the cutting off. It's where somebody grabs a clay pot and runs to the sun and slams the pot down, and if it breaks, the sun needs to turn around and leave. He can never return, and even the parents can't welcome the child back. And so the father is on the edge of the property, He's looking, he's waiting, he's searching, he's longing. He's wondering when, if his son would come back. And if his son comes back, he needs to be the first one to get to the son. 
to prevent Kezaza from happening. For there's a second part of the tradition that if the father is the first one to the son and the father embraces the son, all is forgiven and no one can slam the pot at his feet. And so that might be what's going on in the text. Either way, we have a father that's searching, a father that's longing, and when the father sees the son, he embraces the son, and he calls for servants. And he says to the servants, give him the finest robe, certainly the robe of the father, and put a ring on his finger. That would be the signet ring. That would be the ring that has initials on it or some kind of code that distinguishes it from other families. It would be used when you would send a document and you'd pour hot wax to seal it and you'd take the ring and you'd push in your signet or your initials, sealing the document, identifying it as from you. That's the signet ring. That's put on the son's hands. And shoes on his feet. If you're going to have a party and anyone is allowed inside your house, only one person wears shoes. That's the father, the master of the house. He alone wears the shoes, but he gives this right to the son. And then he kills the fattened calf, signifying that there will be a celebration, not just for immediate family, but for everyone. Because that son was lost, and now he's found. That son was dead, and now he's alive. And let us celebrate. So how are we going to apply the text. First, a word to parents and grandparents of prodigals. A tender word. First, if you don't have a prodigal, thank the Lord for that and, and pray for someone else's prodigal. It's by God's grace that you don't have one. Prodigal parents, parents of prodigals, a day never goes by without them praying, without their heart being pulled, without tears being shed. Don't stand in judgment of parents of prodigals. Stand and link arms with them and pray. They're already hurting. I'm sure of that. And if that prodigal comes home, I'm not talking about coming home to use your house as a landing spot, to use you once again, to use your resources. I'm not talking about that. But if the prodigal really comes home and the prodigal really confesses and repents, maybe we take a page out of the prodigal father. I notice that the first thing he does is not the third degree. I notice that the first thing he does is says the son was dead and now alive. He was lost and now is found. Give him the robe, give him the ring, give him the shoes, kill the fattened calf, let's celebrate. Now, I have no doubt that questions are going to come, absolutely. One's going to want to know what happened, where one went. Certainly, rules are going to be made for future living, absolutely. But if a prodigal truly comes home, the first thing I see is celebration. And if your prodigal comes home, maybe... We take a page out of the text and, and we celebrate before we get down to business on how to navigate life going forward. Second, the prodigal really is all of us. To some degree or another, all of us are prodigals. 
If we have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're still prodigals. We still have a father who's on the horizon looking, longing, searching, waiting, wanting prodigals to come home. He provided a means of salvation for prodigals of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He allowed his own son to willingly go to the cross to die as a payment to rise again as the first fruits of salvation. He loves the prodigal to come home. But beyond that, prodigals can be born again believers. Prodigals certainly are in this room. Where we step back in our faith, we become a little bit carnal, a little bit belligerent to the things of God. And we start doing things our way, and we start ignoring the truths of Scripture, the rules given in Scripture, not so that God is a heavy thumb on our chest kind of God, but a God who loves us. It's, scripture is given that we might avoid some of the pain and the sorrow that God doesn't want. But some of us here today are probably prodigals, even prodigals in faith. And God is longing and waiting and searching for us to come home, to confess, to repent. Repent means to turn. Oh, I'm sure he knows about our slobbery prayers. We've all uttered them. I'm sorry, God, I won't do it again. But if there's sincerity, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The prodigal in the story, he's got nothing to bring, does he? Some colorful stories, perhaps, but he's got nothing in his hand. We would expect the prodigal would come bearing gifts, but it's the father who has the gift. The prodigal, he's got nothing. We got nothing. And yet verse 20 tells us that the father kisses, it's a plural word, he kisses the son. And 22 and 23, he puts a robe around him, a ring on him, shoes on him. And then he kills the fattened calf. God is longing today for some prodigals to come home. And finally, there's a little bit of symbolism perhaps from some of the gifts given to the son. The first is the robe. And when a prodigal comes home, we all get a robe. It's the robe of righteousness. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 61.10. He makes this statement. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And so when the prodigal comes home and embraces Christ, we're given the robe of righteousness. We're also given the signet ring, which is actually the language used of the Holy Spirit who's the down payment guaranteeing our future inheritance. Let me read from Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's actually we're sealed with the signet ring of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We get the new shoes, the shoes of peace. We're shod with the shoes of peace. It's part of the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 
the 15th verse. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given with the gospel of peace. And the fattened calf, it's also killed. There's a celebration. There's a party. It kicks off all of eternity in heaven. It's called the marriage banquet of the Lamb. And so we read in Revelation 19, the ninth verse. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And so the Lord is the father. We're the prodigal. We come with nothing in our hands. There's nothing that we have, nothing we've done, nothing that we are that can impress a holy, all-powerful, sovereign God. And yet we come because the Father is the one longing and waiting and drawing through his Spirit. And when we come, he celebrates. All of heaven erupts. We saw that last week in the first part of Luke uh, 15, verses 1 to 10. And now we see that the Father has celebration for the Son and the robe and the ring and the shoes and the fattened calf. And even we who know Christ, if we wander, He draws us back. He longs for us back. And He celebrates. And so prodigal, come home. Prodigal, come home. Let's pray. Father God, we can all rightly say that we are prodigals. Certainly prodigals prior to faith, but even prodigals in faith. A prodigal prior to faith, Lord, is is one that needs your son Jesus. And I pray that by faith some might come today And believe in the free gift of salvation through your Son. And yet, Father, we all admit from time to time, probably today for many, that we are prodigals in faith, going after the things of the flesh, the things of the world, rather than things of you. And forgive us and cleanse us Empower us by your spirit to turn from our prodigal behavior to righteousness. We thank you, Father, that you say, prodigal, come home. Prodigal, come home. And finally, Father, I want to pray for those parents who have prodigal children. Father, we ask for grace upon grace for them. We ask, Father, that you would be ever near and dear to them that you would protect these children, whether young or older. Bring them to the bottom of themselves. Allow them to look up. Allow them to come to you and to come home. And Father, may we be a church that stands arm in arm with parents who have prodigals, with grandparents who have prodigals, not acting haughty and judgmental, but understanding, but for the grace of you, that could be us. Father, we thank you that you love prodigals. Bring prodigals home, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen.